Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Yeah, I know there are difficult forecasts out there, but forecasts are not destiny. And so, as the government starts to run out of money, it can simply print more. The market is a... Uh... I was going to say most ingenious, ingenious without having been designed. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, in Australia this week, the Reserve Bank put up interest rates again, and already we're seeing the squeeze in the housing sector, big falls, particularly in capital cities over the last year. But there again, we saw big rises going into the pandemic. But Australia does have some of the most expensive housing in the world, and people have been talking about a crash for decades, Steve included. So could it happen this time? Are we ready for the bubble to burst this time? That's this week on the Debunking Economics podcast. Well, Australian house prices over the decades, they have defied gravity. And can they continue to do so? So the median price of a house in, in Australia now, even allowing for the scummy bits. And look, if you're not from Australia, there are scummy bits to Australia. It's not all glorious. Uh, 702000 Australian dollars is the average across the whole country. And Sydney, and again, even in Sydney, there are scummy bits. The median value, the median, is now over £1 million. Uh, so that's uh, five hundred sixty thousand pounds or mm-hmm. six hundred eighty thousand US dollars. Mm-hmm. That's a million after a thirteen percent fall in house prices in Sydney in the last year. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, two things. One, I mean, obviously we're talking about the median value, which is the best measure, isn't it? Really, here, yeah, median rather than the average. Yeah, take the distribution of all the properties, and it's the figure which appears in the middle. Mm-hmm. So it's not inflated upwards by so the average. Is, is yeah, it was going to be those high end properties. Yeah. Obviously, going to push the average. That's average right. Up. Yeah. Uh, so it's a true reflection, really, of how someone... 50% sla- above and below. Yeah. Know, yeah. So if you're yeah. slap bang in the middle of, yeah. uh, of of Australian income, that's how much you pay for a house. And that's a million in Sydney. So mm. how can it be, if you've got a mortgage five times your household income, you'd need 200000 a year uh, in Sydney. 80% of Australians have an income under 154000 So less than 20% of the population can actually afford to pay for these prices if it was based on income alone. Yeah. So they've obviously got a chunk of money from mum and dad selling their exorbitant house price. I mean, it, it, only, it surely can only exist because of this wealth being passed on from generation well, not, to generation. It's not the bank of mum and dad. It's the bank of bank that's the problem. Mm. Okay, so then this is the, the thing which has driven house prices in Australia um, for pretty much starting at the the middle of the recession we had to have, uh, is this banks could no longer sell debt to the corporate sector. So you know, they'd, they'd given as much money as they could to Christopher Scase and Alan Bond and other highly responsible and ethical mm. leading Australian business people. Uh, and there were the downturn, which began the recession we had to have. Um, but I, I really thought the banks would be so scarred by that experience that they would stop lending 
for a while. You know, be very, very hesitant to lend. That is the the, the the beginning of the recession, the day that Paul Keating had to front the journalists and they'd done their, you know, the end of that old story, they'd all taken bets about how long it would take him to say the word recession. And they were guessing he'd, he'd you know, filibuster for ages. And he walked in there and said, well, we're in a recession, but recession it's a recession we, we have, have to have. have. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think yeah, the, yeah. Person who, the, the, the person who's least likely to win the bet won the bet because they just took a, a small number. Others had hundreds of words. So we're in a recession, um, and and that's when I thought, well, given that's you know the, the the recession itself, the impact upon corporate balance sheets, the banks themselves being corporates and seeing their share prices plunge, uh, they would be hesitant to lend. That is when the rate of growth of house of housing debt took off because they look at because they want to lend with collateral. That would be it, wouldn't it? Well, then, and the, the, the trouble is, and this is the thing which mainstream economists will never understand because they did, they refuse to understand that banks create money. Um, but the the collateral, the value of the collateral is determined by how much you borrow. Mm. There's, a, there's a circularity in the system. Yeah, yeah. And that's what they're not aware of. Yeah, so they lend out lots. That yeah. pushes up house prices. Therefore, you've got more collateral against yeah. the, the loan. So your yeah. loan's looking so sweet. If you go back far enough, this is back to the 1960s roughly, you can find the level of household debt then compared to GDP about 20% of that order. And it has risen to 100% and then come down a bit. Uh, but there was a, like a five-fold increase in the level of leverage uh, for Australian uh, households. And when so long as that was increasing and increasing at an increasing rate, which is another thing we'll have to talk about later in the, in the podcast, uh, then you're going to have rising house prices. Mm. And so it's all, every time there's a lull, and this is what really pisses me off about Australian politics, is that both sides of politics, they don't know why, but they know that if you're having a downturn, the best thing you can do is pump up house prices. And the best way to do that is a scheme like the first-time buyer scheme. Right, but can Where, they keep on doing that? I mean, they've tried everything, haven't they? Can well, they keep on keep on pumping up house prices? Well, I mean, the, the, you look at all the Australian. If, if you want to understand Australian politics, the best thing is to say what keeps house prices high, and then you can understand what what Labor and Liberal do, yeah. whoever happens to be in power. Well, no one, no one wants to be there when people start seeing yeah, their, yeah. their their assets losing value. That's right. So the so the pressure to keep those assets rising all the time is there, but of course that has a, a rather deleterious effect on those who don't have assets. Now that was at one stage twenty percent of the population uh, who could have, who couldn't afford to ever get into the uh, the property markets they were the sort of permanent renters now it's hitting 30 percent 40 percent and people who are first home buyers uh, and are now pretty much getting ready to greet their first grandchild uh, by the time they uh, take on the house purchase so you you've you got a smaller and smaller number of people who can move in there and the hurdle remains the the, the major hurdle remains the deposit but of course that's where the bank of house of the bank of mum and dad comes for those in. who've got uh, yeah for, for the for this generation for that yeah. generation that's that got in early, got yeah. the house, saw the house prices go up in value. Yeah, they've got those assets, so they can become the bank of mum and dad. Which they've but, done. But those but, who didn't do that can't become the bank of mum and dad and what, because and they what, didn't because they haven't got the house to you know because they've been able to afford it. So that's it's, right. It, so it really is a divided society, isn't it? So if you look at the assets held by Australian households, which is of course assets is mostly the house. I mean, yeah. some will have shares and other yeah. investments. The highest quintile, uh, so the you know the top one fifth of the population, mm. they hold assets of three point seven million. Mm. The second one down, the next group, one point seven million. 
Uh, if you look at the bottom quintile, still pretty high. They've got assets of 680,000. Mm. But, I mean, there's a big difference between, obviously, holding assets of 680,000 and 3.7 million. I mean, those those people with 3.7 million, they are holding those assets to be the bank of mum and dad to look yeah. after the kids, aren't they, basically? Yeah. Well, not, not the only reason they do it. There's a nice to be wealthy as well. But nonetheless, that's a major fact. That's, that means that their kids have got the deposit when they come out of the womb. Whereas it's, it's, it's the ones who, um, who uh, you know, have to scrimp and save to do it, who end up being 50 and 60 when they buy their first house, if they buy their first house. Mm. So you've, you've got an increasing cohort of Australians who don't want to see house prices rise because that's not the increase in their wealth. That's the increase in the, the wall they've got to jump over to join the property class. So you are getting, I mean, you're getting to the point where close to half the population will no longer... Um, want to see house prices rise so temporarily because get- they actually make it over the border and they're going to go for the same aspirational target. But you know, at the moment, yeah, they lose out. So how do you get out of this situation? So, I mean, a personal second, so I'm living in the UK now because, yeah. I, I mean, apart from the fact that my wife seems to think she can get better jobs in the UK than she can in, in oh, Australia. Oh, Now, the technological I, level in Australia is huge. Uh, ironically, I keep on getting offered jobs in Australia even though I live in the UK. Yeah. So I could move back tomorrow. But yep. I look at, uh, you know, we have obviously have that conversation about where we are going to uh, retire to, should I eventually retire, or where we're going to live eventually yeah, anyway. Yeah. don't think I'll ever retire. Um and you look at so we as an exercise, I look to see what, for example, what would a million pounds buy um, in uh, and I mortgaged the hilt, uh, so I don't know it'll ever pay off. But you know, we're looking. That's the sort of price range we're we're looking at. So a million pounds in in the UK mm. um, would buy a massive house in Cornwall, sort of like a big five bedroom house. I've seen it. You know, it's mm. my dream house. It's uh-huh. got it's got uh, balco- covered balconies overlooking rolling uh, sort of like acreage with a uh, with a swimming pool comes with the acreage mm-hmm. br- brilliant views a swimming pool and at the end you've got this this pond with a gazebo alongside the the, the pond so you could sort of like walk down to the end and read, read yeah. the latest Steve Keen we better book. start a, a uh, GoFundMe campaign for the poor poor Phil Lobby here okay. <laughs> his million dollar million pound yeah. property okay, yeah. so a million pound which is a phenomenal amount of money to spend yeah. on a house a million pound then I look and I used to live in Warunga and a yeah. million in Warunga would get you a three or four bedroom house which might which would just be clipping the edges of the uh, the pr- property boundary yeah you know the house would just squeeze into the land with, mm. with no sp- external space whatsoever and there's just i mean i know i'm comparing a big city to, to to the countryside but there's absolutely no comparison so so and you'd be thinking well okay at some point places like sydney will outprice themselves and yet people are still moving in there still buying houses mm. okay there's a bit of a dip in house prices now but they're still going up it, it seems well, they're, to they're, go they're on going forever. down at the moment i mean there's yeah. people are still 13 percent the 40 percent fall yeah. that i said would happen at some point with a 10 to 15 year margin 2023 happens to be the date not that i'm going to change claim any any prescience on that call, by the way, mm. but uh, yeah, it's 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 got it's but it's thirteen percent down, but it's still higher than they were before the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, and the and the uh, the, the problem uh, what we've explained is that it's a, it's become a class divide issue, yeah. class and age divide in Australia. So it's now become more controversial than it was. Uh, if you go back. Uh, 
you know, 50, 60 years, and you go back to the 60s and the 70s, then the whole idea of encouraging house ownership could look good to whether you're a renter or a buyer because you had a choice between the two, fundamentally. And it's, not, it's not a class divide, though, is it? It's, it's a whether you did or whether you didn't, whether you were in the right place at the right time. Oh, it's, so it's, you could, it's so you could be Let's very, not leave class out of this. But, I mean, you could, but you could be very wealthy now and not be able to afford to buy a house in Sydney, and you could be not particularly wealthy maybe 30 years ago, and you could afford to buy it, and now you are wealthy yeah, as a yeah. consequence it was, of it was, it was, Capital appreciation was a route to becoming a capitalist. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but capital appreciation driven by government policy on something you bought, which did, you know, you weren't selling the kids. May have been occasionally a bit of thought in the back of the mind, but you weren't making money out of the property. Yeah. So that is uh, that's capital appreciation. It's it's what the Henry George group uh, hammer on about all the time. People who see rising house prices and therefore have a rising wealth level are getting it out of something they've done bugger all themselves. Mm. They simply sat there while railroads get built by the state, uh, uh, where schools get built by the state normally, um, and you have therefore the amenities improve and the population moves out and you benefit from population growth and, and the building of infrastructure you played no role in causing. So in, in that sense, it's, it's the unworthy rich and that's been the basis of Australian success. Well, and let's give some numbers to give an example of that. So if I bought a house in Clovelly in the eastern suburbs of, of Sydney in 1993, the median price in 1993 was $273,000. Yeah. Yeah. In 2018, the median house price is $3.3 million. Yeah. Uh, so in real terms, far, far higher than the rate of inflation. Well, ten and a half percent a year that works out at, yeah, basically, yeah, that's huge. Uh, over 25 years. I mean, if you didn't buy a house, you wouldn't benefit from that. You know, you'd be there stuck trying to buy a house that was worth three point three million. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which you'll never be able to afford to do. Hence, this growing wealth gap that yeah. we're seeing yeah. in Australia. Yeah. So it's it's you know I mean one of the uh, commentators in macro business, uh, David Llewellyn Smith, his uh, handle on Twitter is houses and holes, and the argument is that's what Australia has to offer. Poles, which of course mines, yep. and house prices. So, so, the, so we've actually deindustrialized in the last forty years, but maintained uh, wealth largely through the minerals and, uh, and the agricultural sectors of the economy. And then the way that's been manifest for people is rising house prices, mm. not rising salaries. Um, so, and, and that works as long as you can continue pumping up the market. And it's, it's, we, we continue finding ways to do it. Uh, I mean, the, when you look at the, the impact of COVID, um, I, had, I was expecting prices would fall. Okay? Got to be, I didn't get that one right, just, just in a general feeling. However, what happened was, and this is what I, what I was demanding, governments should spend as much as they can because if you don't give people money now, they're going to go bankrupt uh, because they can't, you know, can't, you know the restaurateur just have got no customers coming in, uh, all, all the various parts of society we'd be relying upon money coming in weren't happening, and if therefore you can't pay your mortgage, you'd fold, then the bank would fold, etc. So you had to spend the money. What that meant was about a 20 or 30% boost in people's bank balances. Yeah. And then in a lot of the rest of the world, that meant you know booming consumer demand. But in Australia, it also meant, hey, I've got a deposit. And then what you got out of that was continuation of the house price bubble. So prices increased like about 20% or so yeah. over, over the COVID Houses bubble. will have improved as well, of course, because people will have actually been investing. Those who've got a house will have been putting in that extension. And, you know, it's a massive amount of, as, as happened, I think, everywhere in the world. Yeah. People, people yeah. spending that money to try and increase the value of their property because mm. they thought, well, God, you know, yeah. but this this might, is the, we might not I mean, get out much and, anymore. And, and people call this investment, and I'm sorry, unless you are selling the kids, it's not investment. Uh, investment is something that creates a factory that produces 
produces output. Mm. And uh, there's nothing about the price of a house that means you produce better quality kids. In fact, I've seen there's a bit of a negative correlation there. <laughs> uh, so uh, th- this is the the problem. We we have we have just we have called Australia has called, and this is a global phenomenon, but Australia is probably the most outrageous example of it. We've called speculation investment. Mm. Now, if you get if you, if you gamble right and the prices do rise, then yeah, you make money uh, because you can then sell the, you know, the the lump of dirt you've purchased for a higher price and you paid for it. But in terms of actually meaning you have a productive capacity, no, you probably got less because um, and certainly I don't like the whole hang up on private education, which is also a, another fetish in Australia. Uh, people have been you know starving and scrimping so they can send their kids to private school. So whatever you get, you, you get a you you know, most of your spending goes into the private education system and servicing the mortgage and you're eating takeaway. Uh, so it's undermined the commercial side of the country you'd actually like to have expanded, let alone talking about the manufacturing side of the economy. So uh, to me, it's incredibly negative, stupid way to run an economy, but that's what Australia's been famous for. So what is the benefit of you being 85 with a... $5 million house, because you're going to die anyway. Mm. I mean, the only thing you can think of is, well, okay, I can pass that on to the kids. Which is what f- frequently happens. But what you then have is the, the, the mortgage, the, the main barrier is, of course, the deposit, getting the deposit together. Now, if you go, and this has also been one of the trends which the banks have encouraged, and that is if you go back to the 60s and 70s, and I'm speaking as the son of a bank manager, uh, you had to have a 30% deposit or you didn't bother going up to knock on his door mm. in your best best uh, attire. Well, that would, that would, so that would be fine for a $270,000 house in Clavelli in uh, 1993. Yeah, yeah. And like I actually purchased a $192,000 house in Marrickville right. that same year, mm. and we had a deposit of 60000 From memory, and so we had now one third of the purchase price covered. Uh, When you're talking in terms of a a million dollars for somewhere in Wurunga, you've got to have three hundred thousand dollars to be at the same proportion. Now, what's actually happened is the banks have dropped the dropped the initial deposit level, and they've said okay to to the point of even actually saying, well, the zero deposits. And and at one crazy stage, Mm. well, tell you what, you don't need a deposit plus. Take out a loan with us, and we'll give you some money to help you get started. Which is the same thing Japan did. So Japan, Japan got to the stage where you had ninety-nine year mortgages, mm. and you'd literally sign a mortgage which you knew would outlive you, yeah. and therefore meant that with your kids, rather than inheriting the house, inherited the mortgage as well. And that's that bubble all came crashing down in nineteen, starting in nineteen ninety, and you had falling house prices ever since then. Um, some, some so that's change. how far you've got to go before you actually get this sustained loss. I, I think there could be because, because there are people making a bomb out of this uh, fixation on rising house prices. Mm. Hello, real estate agents. Hello, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Domain, because a huge part of their uh, what they used to call the rivers of gold comes out of classified advertisements for, for house sales. So there's an enormous part of the, and a very powerful and vocal part of the Australian um, political scene that wants to have rising house prices forever. But the only way you're going to have rising house prices forever rising faster than incomes is if you can fill the gap by borrowing money. Right. And that's what we've been doing. But we've now reached saturation on that. So if you take a look at the level of household debt, you go back to 1970, you find that household debt was about 40% of GDP. It peaked in between 2018 and 2020 at 120% of GDP. 
Okay, Phenomenal. So three times as level of debt. Now it's heading down. Now, what Australia has done is, is every time it starts to dip, another policy comes along to boost it. First home buyer grant, um, halving the rate of capital gains tax. Right, because limiting. when it dips, that basically means people aren't paying as much for houses. So it's, when it dips, that basically means house prices are coming down with it. Yeah, they're probably mm-hmm. went, went, because of the, the, the driving mechanism, and this is like I got this right in terms of the cause of the financial crisis in 2008. What I got wrong was where it would actually apply because the, the driving force for the financial crisis back in 2008 <clears throat> was d- dramatic increase in private debt and for all sorts of purposes globally, but in Australia, almost exclusively for buying houses. So people borrow money, and you then spend that borrowed money. And what the, the mainstream will, of economics will never understand, because they, if they understand it, they've got to cease being mainstream economists. It's a bit, you know, if you, if you, it's a bit like being, <clears throat> if you really enjoy being a Scientologist and you understand something, you have to cease being a Scientologist. You'd prefer not to understand it. Well, that's... <laughs> the Australian hang-up. It's a, a similar cult, is what similar you're saying. Similar cult, yeah. Mm. So, with with um, with when when you borrow money from a bank, the bank says, "There's a great idea to buy the house in Moringa Phil. Here's a two million dollars to buy it. Two point five. You want to furnish it nicely. Mm. And by the way, you owe us two point five million. Okay. So you get the extra money, in, for dollar for dollar, you get extra debt as well. Now. What then happens is you buy that house with that extra money. So what you've bought, what you've bought it with is the change in household debt. Okay. So the level of household debt is one issue. The change of it is another. And that's what you buy the house with. And that's what sustains current house prices. So you can correlate, and it's a causal relationship. It goes both ways because if you see rising house prices, you think, oh, I want to get on that ladder. You know, that encourages you. And equally, if you, if you borrow, borrow the money, then you cause the ladder to rise as well. So they, it's a dual causation thing. But when you buy a house, you're buying it with new mortgage debt. So there's relationship between current house prices and the rate of change of mortgage debt. When you then do your mathematics, there's therefore a relationship between change in house prices and change in the change in household debt. Now, that's getting a bit too complicated for most people. So if you define uh, household credit as the change in private debt, a change in household debt over a year, then what's driving the increase in house prices is change in household credit. So if that's if household credit, say, 10% of GDP, and it goes to 15%, your change is plus five. That's your change in household credit. So that's got to be going up all the time yeah. to cause the rising house prices. Yeah. And ultimately, you get to the point where you've got to go back and say, so what's that done to the level of household debt? It reaches an absolute maximum. And so it becomes harder and harder to push that pressure through. And that's the situation Australia is now so what, in. So what creates that ceiling, though? Is it is that just the we, sheer servicing cost? Because right. well, again, when you look at and this is the it's nothing to do with the value of this. It's not to do with somebody looking at a house and going, "Well, three million is a bit ridiculous for that. I'm not going to pay any more than that." Well, that's also part of it. I mean, you do get that attitude coming up now. People weren't saying how. I mean, when I remember looking at house prices in, but we the, wouldn't be looking at that house in Clovelly that was worth two hundred and seventy thousand and going three and a half million is a ridiculous amount for that house now. I mean, we should be doing that. We should be. Yeah. We should be saying, "Well, it's actually only worth two hundred and seventy thousand plus the rate of inflation for the last." Mm-hmm. Years, mm-hmm. but, but we don't. Now we also look at the current current trends, and you know we always all accept. And Keynes made this case about how people handle uncertainty. You accept that current prices are an accurate reflection of value, mm. even though you know, hell, it's 
crazy high here compared to what it used to be. But oh, that must be because it's rational. Right. That's that sort of. So thing. we accept it. So we the price goes up because we accept that we get that extra credit. It's yeah. The, well, you've it's, got to, the bank has to be able to create the credit for you, and you've got to service it. Now, if you look at what you're doing when you buy a house, you're fundamentally a Ponzi speculator mm-hmm. because you don't have a cash flow from the house itself that justifies the house prices. So you've got to have some other source of income that means you can continue doing that. Now, for most people, that's their job, working. Uh, But what it means is a larger and larger proportion of your uh, income goes to servicing that debt. And it doesn't turn up, this is one of the pains of how statistics are defined because people talk about a high savings rate. What the savings rate is is really saying it's income minus what your consumption is, where the consumption does not include what you spend to finance your debt. So what's seen as savings is actually a larger proportion of income going to service debt. It's not really potentially. So it's always the, actually the exact opposite of savings. Huh? It's, it's actually the exact opposite of savings. It's how much you're still yeah. you're paying in how the, how much in the you debt committed. you to the bank for the house that you're That's right. Mm. So, so what you've got is you've, you finally get to the point where people are squeezing all their other forms of consumption to be able to continue servicing the debt. And therefore, what's going out to other people's income? Gets restricted. So the, when so when during the pandemic we're yeah. told that you know the the amount of household savings has has increased. That was really the size of the government deficit. This is again the point modern monetary theory makes, and it's a hundred percent correct on an accounting accounting basis. Uh, if the government runs a deficit of a billion, you know, a trillion dollars, that will turn up as a trillion dollars in people's bank accounts. Okay. Um, it wasn't quite that high in Australia's case, of course. Mm. But the, the the money the money the government spends in it in excess of what it takes back in tax receipts, dollar for dollar turns up in people's savings accounts. The one way that can fall down is that the if the government the banks the banks then when they when that is actually created the banks then buy bonds equivalent to the deficit. When if they sell those bonds to other financial institutions primarily that aren't banks, that actually eliminates the money in the finance sector. But in terms of the, the last stimulus, uh, because the, gov- the money really went directly to people, uh, it turned up in their bank accounts. So you had this huge increase in spending power. It wasn't savings at all. It was government deficit. Mm. And we couldn't spend it, actually, because there wasn't too much to spend it on. So Which is where it turns up in the property market. Yeah, okay. because we use it to pay off our mortgage that, yeah, yeah. that little bit more. So when we paid off our mortgage that little bit more, we were a little le- less in debt. Uh, yeah, if you take a look at the data, in fact, you can see there was a there was a jump in debt, uh, first caused by uh, people having to borrow money, you know, to service their whatever at the beginning of the pandemic. Beginning, particularly, mm-hmm. it was, was more extreme in America. There was quite a substantial increase in both household and corporate debt at the beginning, mainly I think because you were forced into borrowing money for working capital because mm. you didn't have you know you suddenly your cash flow has fallen, then you had to go and access your lines of credit, credit card, etc. But that's 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 fallen away in both those countries. And what you see really for the last, by the looks of it, the last uh, three years, uh, which is pretty much the pandemic period, Australian household debt has fallen from about 122% of GDP to about 114% of GDP. So the trend is down. But the funny thing is that involved an acceleration at one point. So the rate of change of the rate of change became positive. But, but and that's weird. That's, 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 you know, this, this is one reason that I, I know it's even hard for me to get my head around it, because we're very good at handling distance. If I asked you how far it is from London to Farnham, you could probably tell me. Mm. Okay, We're pretty easy at handling the velocity. So if you tell them the train's going to travel you know, at 60 miles an hour, then I'll get here in about an hour. But is it accelerating or decelerating? 
Is it getting faster or getting slower? Sitting on the train, you can tell. Working out the, the logic of it, oh, my God, our heads get swimming. But, it, but, it, but yeah, so, I mean, it is. It does get confusing when you start talking about that rate of change. But but the just looking at the practicalities of it, if mm. you if you suddenly had a slug of money that you didn't have before because the government gave you a, a, a bit of a handout and you go, yeah. okay, I actually don't need that, but thank you very much. The pay the debt down, and that's quite pay, possibly you, why this debt level has fallen. Yeah, yeah. Because but it doesn't that doesn't mean that house prices are necessarily going to fall because it's no, because your house is still you, worth the same amount. Yeah, if you if you're paying your debt down, or the, the the negative is is you know are you using that money to reduce your debt, or are you using that money to buy houses? Mm. Okay. Now, if you're using it to reduce your debt. Um, for those in debt, then that's going to turn up in a fall in the ratio. For many other people, though, of course, that money turns up and that's a deposit. Yeah. So they're willing to go into debt because of it. So you get a lot of distributional issues turning up that I can't answer from looking at the aggregate data. But the overall effect is that it looks like Australia's plateauing around the 110 to 120% of GDP as its level of household debt. So if you're going to try to kickstart house prices again uh, by enticing people into borrowing more money, good luck. The only way you're going to do it is that they change the terms. So if you start having 35-year mortgages, okay, because that reduces your annual servicing costs. Uh, if you reduce the deposit, okay, that can keep this thing going on for a bit longer. Uh, but what you get is more and more your approach to the situation Japan was when its bubble economy burst and you just had you know, 99-year mortgages. Yeah, yeah. Just okay. the, the ability for you to borrow more well, and more. Well, you abuse your yeah. super. So that's yeah. one thing that really annoys me watching this conversation about people being able to access the super as part of the deposit. Mm. Superannuation is supposed to be there for your retirement. Yeah. Now, what it's uh, – and, and it, again, I'm, I've never been – I've always been a critic of the scheme because it privatises what should be a public activity, which is pensions. And it's all about getting – you know, reducing a government deficit, which is a waste of time anyway. The government should be running a deficit. So this whole – and then ties people into uh, asset speculation. They've got to look at the share market and the house prices on a daily basis. Yeah, which but that was that was the, what the Australian government did, wasn't it? They said if you're on a if if you're struggling to get by to mm. be able to afford to pay your mortgage through the pandemic or whatever, yeah. then yeah, you will allow you to dip into your super. Yeah, yeah. What that means ultimately, the finance sector wins mm. because the finance sector is you know one of the groups that profits from rising levels of debt. Of course, is the banking sector that creates the debt in the first place. Their business is selling debt, so you enhance their business by letting them sell yet more debt compared to people's income. Real estate agents, you know, property spruikers, City Morning Herald and the Domain and so on, they're, they're, they're the beneficiaries. But what you end up with is a, is a financially encumbered society. Mm. And the question is how long you take to get there. Now, Australia's delayed reaching that point longer than virtually any other country on the planet, but I think it's now in that region. And so you can get an acceleration in debt for a while out of some policies. You could, you know, like, and, 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 and changes like saying, let's drop the deposit, et cetera, et cetera, will, will help for a while in terms of maintaining the house price. But just making a country more and more financially fragile. And it'd be hard to find a more financially fragile group than Australian households. Well, yeah, but the thing is, we've been saying that for a long time, haven't we? When we come back, I want to I want to talk about that because we, yeah. ha- we have had been having this conversation for decades and it, yeah. still, it still keeps on happening. Yeah. And and also, why is Australia so different to, to other places? Why are house prices so much more expensive in Australia than they are in the UK, for mm. example? Mm. So uh, we'll try and get some answers on that in okay. just a second when we come back on the Debunking Economics podcast. Me and Steve Keane, back in a second. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. We are revisiting that old chestnut, Australian house prices. They are going down right now, but generally, I mean, they are still higher than they were before the pandemic. And they, we know that even though they're down 13% in the last year, uh, in Sydney and all the other capital cities, we know that they will start bouncing back up again. Uh, and how long is that going to go on for? And why is this such a phenomenon in Australia and not in other parts of the world. So, Steve, I've already mentioned the median house price in Australia, including, you know, not, you know, not just the capital cities, mm. 702,000 Australian dollars. UK median house prices are around 525,000 Australian dollars mm. from today's exchange rate. So 25% cheaper. But in America, median house prices are about the same as Australia, about uh, 690,000. So just a little bit less, but sort of same ballpark. Uh, but that's only in the United States. They they have had a massive splurge in the last couple of years, mm. uh, up over 40% actually since the start of the pandemic. The house prices? The house prices in America have just gone crazy. Mm. Uh, but just if we look at that comparison between the UK and Australia, that 25% drop, I wonder if it's the, the UK is lower because of the inheritance tax. So basically, if a couple leaves a house in this country anything over a little less than a million pounds is taxed the full whack. Yeah. Whether you move into it or whether you sell it. In in Australia, mm. uh, you uh, th- there is no inheritance tax. So mum and dad die uh, in unforeseen circumstances. Like old age. Yeah, you, yeah. you inherit the house. You decide that you're going to move into the house. If you if you were to sell it straight away, you'd pay capital gains. But if you mm. say, I'm going to move into the house and I'm going to live in it, and mm. you know, then you don't pay any tax on that whatsoever. Mm. So you've inherited possibly a could be a $5 million property and you're not getting any tax. So not surprising that mum and dad were quite happy to invest in that $5 because they know when they uh, shuttle off this mortal coil. It'll go to the kids. Tax-free. Yeah. yeah, and that's, I mean, and if you look at, that's probably the major difference that you've seen that explains why Australian house prices have risen faster than most parts of the rest of the world. And it's, uh, it, it's basically government policy has been about how to keep house prices high. Mm. So you get, you know, first of all, exempting the family home from capital gains. That's a pretty yeah. good start. Yeah. Um, then you have halving the rate of capital gains. So rather, if you earn an income tax, you pay 40%. House price appreciation, you pay 20%. That sort of thing. Uh, for, for investment properties. Huh? Yeah, yeah. For investment for properties. Investment properties. For, yeah. for, for, then you yeah. have um, uh, the first-time buyer's grant, which I call the first-time vendor's grant. Yeah. Because what it means is you get, you know, the government gives you an extra, as they did during the financial crisis. Some of, the, some of these things have been tried in the UK as well and other parts of the world to try and jolly along house prices. It's not... 
it's not working to the same extent. I'm just wondering whether it is. Oh, because when, it, when it, you look when you look at the very long term, and this is partly reflects England's period as a, as a country where you had like socialised housing. Mm. They have you know, council. My old man's a dustman. He lives in a council flat. Blah yep. blah blah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, back in those days, the housing. And Edward Germany, as well, another classic example, renting is a long-term proposition in Germany, was and still is. So you don't have the same pressure for house. And then when Maggie Thatcher liberated all that stuff, then you had a huge takeoff in house prices. So I think over like 40 years, the country which has had the highest rate of change in house prices is actually the UK. Mm. But house prices in Australia uh, started later and have risen faster and then and then it's in the it's in the sort of late 70s uh, when you had the beginning of uh, economic crises starting we had you know, a period which was called by some of my non-orthodox economic colleagues the golden age of capitalism from pretty much 1950 to 1970 20 years uh, where the system was stable you didn't have financial crises and that's because we had a low level of private debt and that was in response to the Great Depression and the Second World War, uh, which one caused the other fundamentally, and you had an incredible unwillingness amongst that generation to go into debt. Now, of course, 20 years goes by, kids, 10 years goes by, the kids have no appreciation for why the parents are so conservative about borrowing money, and then bang, you get a borrowing level taking off. So that's that's been the whole, we've, we've, we've lived through this bubble globally because we've lived through the financialization of capitalism globally. But the fact that I can pass on, you know, if you're an Australian couple, you can pass on yeah. your property. And that's means, where the government policy turns up. But it also means that you are perpetuating, you know, we talked about this this gap between those people who got in early on the housing market and those who didn't. And yeah. that's the, the great Australian divide that exists now. Mm. Those who sort of realise the Australian dream and for those for whom it would be, it's just a, a dream that is so far away they're never going to reach it. Yeah. That's getting passed from generation to generation. I mean, you could stop that being passed from generation to generation by saying, well, we are going to tax properties uh, as uh, as part of an inheritance tax, and we're, then we're, we're going to reintroduce it. And it was only in the nineteen eighties. And which politicians are going to do it? Because I think what the number of, I think the number of houses owned a by a sensible the people, one, huh? a sensible one that's trying to actually solve sensible? this problem. Yeah, I know. Okay, I mean, exactly, your point is exactly. Can I have some what you've been smoking? It is politically untenable, is what you're saying. <laughs> and of course, it is, exactly. isn't it? Well, just in ter- even in terms of the people making the decisions, I believe I'm not sure. I'm sure. That, People with the Henry George background can inform us on this one. But I think the, the, the average number of homes owned by the average politician in the Australian Federal Parliament is about three. Mm. So you've got people who are themselves, even though they're getting you know, reasonable incomes as members of parliament, their their future retirement is tied up in appreciating house prices, and they're the ones making the decisions. So both sides of politics will support policies that inflate house prices further, and when they start to fall, uh, then it'll be seen as a crisis to be addressed by both of them, regardless of who's in power. And I think you can see a certain amount of that with talking about letting people access their super to pay their mortgage. Mm. What it means is the finance sector wins completely because, it, first of all, it caused the inflation in house prices. Uh, it profited out of the income stream coming out of that. And then when people start accessing their super, that's the finance sector dipping into what you think are your savings. And, of course, it is uh, the people on lower incomes who maybe can afford to buy a house, but they're spending so much more of it, they've got so much less 
disposable income. So, th- so some of the people I mix with in you know in, in my career uh, are more conventional in terms of their thinking on economics. Never. And, yeah, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Yeah, more conventional than me. Mm. And if I talk about uh, you know the rising rich poor gap and you know how it's got worse during the pandemic, they're yeah. very quick to point out. Well, actually, no. If you look in Australia, it's the complete opposite. Because, uh, and if you look at the, re- and the, they're right, if you look at the numbers re- in terms of the redistribution of, of, of income, uh, so 20 to 21 to 22, uh, then the lowest quintile, uh, the proportion of all disposable income in mm-hmm. Australia, that lowest quintile accounts for 12% of all disposable income. Mm-hmm. The top quintile accounts for 34.9% of all disposable income. Mm-hmm. But if you look at that distribution, the lowest quintile, then they rose from 4.1% to 12%. So they actually had a larger proportion. They had a lot less before the pandemic. So Mm. a big shift in the proportion of all disposable income went to that lowest quintile. Mm. Whereas the highest quintile Mm. fell from 47.8% of all disposable income Mm. down to 34.9%. That's a huge fall. That's a huge fall. I know. I do check your stats on that, Trump. But that's, I mean, what 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 that is showing is that when you when the government does social security spending, and that's fundamentally what you can regard the COVID spending as doing, it will increase the incomes of the lower group far more than the top because the lower group are poor. Wow, how amazing. So if you if you have a you know everybody gets a thousand dollars, matters a lot more to people who are poor than are rich. Yeah. So in a per capita basis, you're going to reduce inequality. And that obviously happened during the pandemic. But, of course, it's now turning up in house prices again, which yeah, yeah. reverses the process. Well, yes. Yeah, so if you look at liabilities then, so that's the disposable income. If you look at liabilities, though, for the lowest quintile, um, it rose 8.2%. So their their liabilities are $124,000. Mm. It's quite a lot of money if you're one of those low-income earners. Mm. The highest income quintile, their liabilities are 544000 that's all. A lot less than their assets. Yeah, a lot less. And than this, their this is partly again where the distribution of income turns up once more. Um, you're, you, when you, if you have a, you know, income flow from business, uh, property, even property speculation, uh, you are going to have less debt compared to your income than the poorer people are. So there's a certain point where you simply can't even afford to get onto the onto the ladder, and those people are often be carrying credit card debt, with, which they can't function. But you know the Credit card debt charges 25% per annum, so the banks are doing okay, even if people fold on that front. But fundamentally, it's it's the the wealthier you get to the you get to the point where you you don't you you're not you're not lending money; you own shares in the bank that does the lending instead. Yeah. So where does all this end? It's well, a, I think it's I think it stultifies um, because I mean the, the government will continue. So you've given to, up on the forty percent drop because we. Oh no, no, well, you, 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 you and I have been talking for decades. Yeah. And at the beginning of that period, you were at that stage where you're talking about a 40% drop in, in, in Australian house prices. Yeah. And you've had a million and one reasons since for why it hasn't happened. And largely it is because governments have been propping it up because yeah. they're so fearful of house prices dropping, even mm. though they might believe it's the right thing for the for the betterment of mm. society. But they want to – but, you know, on the other side, you know, it's good in the – you know, it's good for the construction industry. and It gets houses built, doesn't it? Or the houses be built anyway. 
Well, actually, I think the, the rental crisis in Australia. I thought that ironic look on my face. The devil's advocate. I know. No. What, what, what actually just read again the disturbing. Uh, like Australia's become so dependent upon getting foreign money in there to maintain this asset price bubble. So mm. uh, there was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald a couple of days ago with a Bangladeshi student saying his living conditions in Sydney are a thousand times worse than they were in Bangladesh, which was a pretty <laughs> nice dramatic headline. What he meant was he's literally he filmed the bed bugs in the in the the, the slum tenant place he was forced to rent where there's 10 15 uh, kids renting one four bedroom property like I've literally seen examples of that I've seen people I've seen houses in Surrey Hills where the bedrooms are divided in three by uh, by curtains and so the, whoever owns that property is renting out not to a family of five but to 15 students and in a sense you're maintaining that that high house price again by the reputation Australia had doesn't deserve it anymore but had for higher education mm. so uh, again this stuff you know the, the the wave of migration being allowed into the country again uh, the students the universities the, the same article I think that sitting university um, something like 30 60 percent of its revenue is coming from foreign students so all this stuff is is maintaining that pressure on house prices and how it's manifesting itself is an absence of rental properties and outrageous incomes for for places you're not developing but 39 billion a, a year uh, for the construction industry um, in Australia um, which is about uh, twice per capita what we're seeing in the UK mm. so there's a there's a whole industry there which is being pro it's, it's actually not much more than in the United States having said mm. that per capita mm. so perhaps Britain's the exception more than more than Australia but I mean it is I mean it's an industry isn't it I mean, it's, it's, and, and again, it, you have a you know, property lobby, a finance lobby. Uh, they've got the politicians by the proverbials, and the politicians themselves benefited from it because they said a lot of them are landlords too. So you've, you've got a real political miasma. And to try to change it, I think it, it, they'll continue trying to pump up house prices. Now, uh, and, if they flatlined, if you didn't uh, do that, uh, if, you, if, if, the, if the, those prices flatlined or started to come down, uh, then you wouldn't see that level of investment in the construction industry, though, would you? Uh, probably not. But think that house, house price supply is a fairly irrelevant issue to house prices. Mm. This, this is the thing. I mean, people talk about it, but they never actually put the logic together properly um, because you know, it takes a hell of a long time to build a house. I'm, I'm building one in Bangkok, as it happens. It's a year from start to go for construction. You wouldn't necessarily have the same time delay when you're doing, you know, mass rollout of houses or apartments in a in a construction industry in Australia. But it's still lengthy and slow. Uh, what that means is most of what's going to determine action on house prices is therefore the demand side, not the supply. And if you really did bump up the supply, it could cause a crash in house prices, which of course is the last thing politicians actually want. So they make lip service to increasing supply. But what you what you've got is a country like Australia's case reliant heavily upon on highly geared households and rented properties where the rental property income, a large part of it, is coming from foreign students. Mm. So it and foreign students, you know, when, when Bangladesh foreign students start to complain about the standard of housing in Australia, 
Something's wrong with your society. But that is, but I mean, it's, so it is demand, but it's obviously also supply. The two are linked, aren't they? So it's because if you've got a whole load of people, so I've got some numbers. You might be surprised to know. I've got some numbers on this as well. Oh, so, no. Okay. Uh, almost 200,000, now people are jumping back into Australia, 200,000 new permanent arrivals per year mm. versus about 130,000 new building starts. And of those new building starts, obviously there's more than one person per house, but a chunk of those new building starts will be replacing older stock. You know, they, that's not 130,000 new houses. It's, 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 it's it, a gross, it, not a net. Yeah. 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 So there'll be a whole load of houses which actually just replacing a block that's been knocked down. Mm. Probably, you know, one house knocked down to make room for two smaller houses seems to be the way in Sydney. But anyway, there is a gap between, you know, there's a, there is almost certainly a supply shortage. But as you, you know, point you think you were trying to make, there's a, there's an inherent interest in builders in that and because they can charge more mm, mm. because there will be the demand still there. And, oh, look, there's less houses. Mm, mm. So, so they- yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a miasma. And uh, you, know, it, it, you could maintain it while you continue increasing the level of gearing. But it, we've now reached like an absolute... In, in my opinion, an absolute ceiling at the level of household debt Australians are going to take on, which is about 120% of GDP. Mm. That's where it's it maxed out. It's slightly above that. It's down, but it's 110, 120%. So that means you can accelerate for a while, but you can't accelerate forever. And the acceleration of that debt is what drives rising house prices from the credit side. So the only thing you're left with is to extend how long you let people have have, have mortgages for, and that's what the banks will be into next, 35-year okay. mortgages. That then means, of course, the banks are fragile because if there's a downturn, uh, then people can't service their debt. So, you know, you get your reward for this for, for a financially driven society for 40 years is financial fragility. So uh, let's focus then on the last point, mm. on, on that, you know, that speed of, of, mm. of debt Let's get all, you know all across that just as our closing. But just finally, before we do that, though, yeah. just another number for you to for me to throw at you. Even though there is that discrepancy in the short term on the number of arrivals versus the number of new building starts, yeah. if we look at it over a period, mm. there's 10.8 million dwellings in Australia, or there were in 2021, compared to 7.8 million in 2001. So that's a 38% increase in dwellings. The population increased by 36% over that time. So actually it's pretty close. Pretty close. So mm. it looks as though it's almost keeping pace with the uh, with the population. So that then gets back to your argument. It's, it's actually the demand time. side that drives the prices. That's yeah. right. And the demand is borrowed money. Okay. So on that demand side then, so say we are at the point of maximum borrowing, mm. banks are going to lend less or the, the increase is going to be slower. Talk us through why that slowing down of the speed of that of those loans is is important rather than sort of like seeing an acceleration happening. Well, because when when, when you have a, 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 de, a declining, uh, if acceleration is negative, okay, yeah. that feeds through to the house prices. It's so easy, growth is slowing. In other it, words. It's, easy, it's easy to think in terms of the, the demand side, which is the new new mortgages. If new mortgages are the main source of money to buy housing and new mortgages are falling, then either you're going to have selling less houses or you're going to sell the same number of houses for less money. So <coughs> you end up in a point where you're going to have declining house prices. And you've put it off in Australia's case by maintaining that acceleration effect. RUD, doubling and trebling the first-time buyer's grant, one week after I was asked about what's going to happen to house prices by Kerry O'Brien on the same program. Uh, uh, and, and then the... Uh, you know the, the capital gains tax with with Howard and Co. Before that, um, 
first time buyers grant this time around for the new Labor government, a small number of houses, 30,000, but they're going to continue the same policy and they won't have the same bang for the borrowed buck. So if I, so if I go to the bank and say I need a, a million dollar loan mm. and they say that that's cool, I go and buy a house which is worth 1.2 or 1.1 million mm. with it. If they say, um, and then... If they say we're going to lend you less money, then you can pay less money for the mortgage, yeah, for the house. So you start finding that hits the house prices. Or, and the only way they can actually be neutralised is people are less willing to sell. They hang on and hope they can rent them out, and you start getting slum landlord effects. And that's where, again, the pressure comes on to maintain these. In my opinion, I feel sorry for them. Foreign students coming in and thinking they're going to get an education. And the main thing Australia's doing them is, is using them to gouge, gouge them for rental, rental markets to keep their house prices high. But if I'm paying less for my mortgage, then I've got, um, I've got a bit more cash to spend on other stuff. So it's not good for the construction. Well, the construction industry is still going to buy. There's still housing demand, it's just that we're not going to pay as much. It's just the, 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 the price has gone down. I think that their main the, cost is buying the land to build on in the first place. And if they see that that's going to get, uh, uh, you know, and they're actually... So off. the land value is going to go down, isn't it? Yeah, but, it, but you, you equally have land banking going on a lot of these organisations. Prosper Australia is very good for keeping data on, on these sorts of things. So right, but over, if, over, if, if the long-term <clears throat> trend is the house prices are not increasing by the same amount or they're stagnating, then those land values are going to stagnate as well, aren't they? I mean, or they're yeah. going to fall. Yeah. yeah. So, like that, well, that's your, Japan has been the long-term example of that. Right. And like they've also had a, a demographic with a falling population. And, and you know, nobody talks about Japan as a problem anymore. Would it, so we, would it be a problem for Australia? So if, if, if prices stagnated or even started to come down, bad news for those people who are sitting on a $3.5 million property in Clavelli. They've got... Uh, mm. I mean, it doesn't matter to them till they die. It just means mm. the kids get if less. If they've paid their mortgage off. If they've paid their mortgage off. Yeah. So they get the, it means the kids get less. But but so what? And for those people starting out, then it's a, it's a, yeah. it's a I, good I, thing. It, it might be finally a chance for Australia to do some investing rather than speculating for a change. Well, mm. I won't hold my breath. Well, you'll have a bit of extra cash because you're not spending it on your mortgage. So, you yeah. know, you, you know, the difference between how much you're earning and what you're paying on the mortgage is, yeah. is that those, you know, those savings figures that you were talking about, which are really your mortgage payments, could be money that you could be spending on other stuff. Getting, which, kick, kick, kicking the economy along. Which is what's happened in a country that have stopped being obsessed about house prices. Right. So it's a good thing, is what we're saying. I want to see it happen, but uh, you know, it, my my fear is that it would happen in a way which will bankrupt a lot of people and bankrupt the banks as well. And the banks are far too big. I mean, Australian banks make up a substantial part of the uh, stock market index, more so I think than virtually any other country on the planet. And that just reflects the extent to which Australia's got one of the most but financialized only societies. Only bankrupts. Uh, well, it bankrupts people if they've got too many investment properties. I mean, some people might say. Oh dear! What a pity. Never mind. Mm. Uh, banks. I mean, it would only upset banks if it all happened instantaneously. If we're talking about a, a decline that happens over five years or whatever, people adjust. And they so can maintain like the Japanese. But you, again, if you take a look again, this is where the Japan Japanese history is quite fascinating. If you go back to 1990, I think it was nine of the world's ten biggest banks were Japanese. Mm. Now none of them are. Wow. Okay, so mm. it, 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 it's an inflated financial sector and a financial bubble, and Australia's fallen for it more than any other country on the on the on the globe, including the Japanese. 
Well, look, you know, I'd like to see the Australian banking sector continue for a while, at least till till reach my retirement. I know you'd age. have a certain involvement in the in the sector there. <laughs> All right, very good. Well, it's been good talking about it again, uh, and uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll revisit it again in a few years for but, sure. Uh, uh, yeah, but you're not predicting a forty percent drop like you were all those years ago. It's, no, but it could, the thing is, it could happen now. I mean, I, I, I don't regard Australian house prices as the most important issue on the planet. Right. Very good. All right. Well, maybe uh, the uh, discrepancy between the what the BRICS countries want and what the West wants, and are we going to have two monetary systems as a result of that? Maybe that's something more important. So why don't we talk about that next week? Slightly more important. Okay. The Debunking Economics Podcast. 